0: Heavenly Father, thank you, Father, for the word that reminds us of how far we are from you. Thank you, Father, for the reminder, because, Father, so often we begin to think we've arrived. And as soon as we believe we are the holy people you call us to be, then that's when we become fodder for the enemy, for the schemes of the enemy, and for the deception of our flesh, and then we fall right back down to where we once were. Thank you, Father, that we have stories like that of the Danites. And others like them, throughout the pages of our Bible, stories of the sinful, depraved nature of men, the call of Scripture to be holy like our Father in heaven is holy, and yet the inability of our bodies to to meet that call, because, Father, we are weak in the flesh, and we are so dependent on your Spirit to overcome that weakness. We thank you, Lord, for that reminder. For, Father, we want to be like you and we need your power to do that. We need the power that comes only by the saving grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And and we need the daily power of the Spirit working in us. And the pages of Scripture, Father, stand as testimony that you are the one who lifts up those who are humble in spirit and who confess their sins and who turn to you seeking your mercy. And yet, Father, you are also the one who frustrates the proud. and who will not um, condescend to help those who seek to help themselves. And so, Lord, I ask that you would show us the truth in the story that we read today of Dan and what they did. Show us something of ourselves, Father, while at the same time reminding us, Father, that there is mercy and that there is grace. For it could be no other way. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, permit me to start this morning with a simple analogy Chinese bamboo is going to be my analogy for the morning. Chinese bamboo is actually a very fascinating plant. It's interesting in one way more than any other. During the first four years or so of a new bamboo shoot's life, it's a puny, pathetic little thing. It barely grows at all. In fact, standing next to full-grown bamboo, you might just think of it as a weed in the garden that you would just pull up. But during those four years, there's something going on you can't see. It's putting down very deep roots. Because in the fifth year of its life, that bamboo stalk will shoot skyward now that it's got an established root. And it can grow up to 80 feet in that fifth year. After four years of just laying low. In some ways, we need to see the three stories that come at the end of the book of Judges like bamboo in the sense that these are the roots of Israel's troubles. Remember, these last... Three stories, the two that end Judges and the story of Ruth that follow. These stories are all set during the same period of time as the book of Judges. And they're actually going backward in time. They're looking at things that happened earlier in the time of Judges. And in that sense, we call them an epilogue to the story. And in what we've studied so far in the book of Judges, we've seen the people of Israel doing, as you all know, what is right in their own eyes. We saw that repeating pattern of them falling into idolatry, then God's wrath and discipline, and then in some cases a repentance of Israel. And then we just turn that cycle over again and again. Now what we're seeing are the roots of all of that evil. Like bamboo, these stories were happening out of view. They were in the corners of the nation. They were not on the first pages of the book of Judges. But they soon led to sin that ran rampant. In the nation. And it really became the impetus for so much of what followed in the centuries later. So these three stories, if you will, are the backstory on Israel's sin during the time of Judges when they lacked a strong, godly leader in the nation. That first story we've already gotten into now, we're about to finish today, it's documented in chapters 17 and 18. That's the story, as you know, of the sin of an Ephraimite named Micah and the Danites, the tribe of Dan. They conspire together to introduce idolatry into the nation of Israel. And it comes in a one-two punch. It begins with the introduction of a homemade system of worship in the home of this man, Micah, an Ephraimite, who invented the idea that you could worship under your own terms in your home in a counterfeit way. As we saw earlier, he was raised in an ungodly home. He's an unbeliever himself. And then his pride led him to hire this Levite as his own personal priest, setting up a private religious service in his home. It's it's really the ultimate example of someone doing what is right in their own eyes. He was worshiping God in the way his own eyes preferred, forgetting that you can't define for yourself how you reach God. It's by his means alone that we know him. That was the first punch, as I call it. The second punch came from the Danites. Now, that's what we're studying today in chapter 18. They decided at a point, as we heard out of Joshua, that they didn't want to stay in the land that God had allotted to them. They didn't trust the Lord to get them through the problems of defeating the the Philistines and the others that occupied the land. They weren't willing to engage in the battle, the battle that Joshua told them to engage in. And instead, what they chose to do was to embark on a long journey elsewhere into the land of Israel, looking for some other place, some better place in which to settle down, eventually setting their sights on a town called Laish in the Canaanite areas north of Israel, in the very northern reaches. It's part of the territory of Naphtali in the northern part of the country. Ironically, they were willing to fight those Canaanites to capture that city, but they weren't willing to fight the people that were occupying the land they had been given by God. If they had done that, of course, they could have enjoyed the land God had for them. So today, friends, where we go now is these two stories, Micah and the Danites. These two streams, they merge into a flood of sin that's going to sweep across the entire nation. This is where idolatry gets its start in the history of the nation of Israel. And if it's left unchecked, what this means is nothing less than the destruction of the nation of Israel. Because their very identity as a nation depends on these two things which are now at risk. That is, adherence to the law of worship that had been given through Moses and commitment to the inheritance he had defined for them in the land. Those are the two defining characteristics of this people. Remember, this is a people God took out of nowhere and made a people on his own and defined them as a nation. And he did so so that they could represent him in the world. In Deuteronomy 7, chapter 7, verse 6, this is what he told them back in that day. He says, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession, out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. He did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But, because the Lord loved you, and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand, and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So, if Israel abandons worship of Yahweh in the way that they've been given, or if the tribes separate and just go their own way and live wherever they want, well, then the Jewish people come to an end. Because that's what defines them. They weren't naturally a people. Remember, God made them out of nothing. These are the things that bind them together. The covenants, the law, the prophets. This is what made them who they are. But now you see the tribes moving away from the law, moving away from each other, moving away from the land that God gave them. And that raises the question, why? And the answer comes back to the same thing we've said since the beginning of this book. Because everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes, rather than listening to the Lord. So now let's move back to chapter 18, beginning in verse 11. Let's conclude the story, the first of these three stories that end the book of Judges. And we find the Danites now moving north, from their allotted land to Laish, to conquer and occupy a land they've chosen. Verse 11. Then from the family of the Danites, from Zorah, from Eshal, 600 men, armed with weapons of war, set out. They went and camped at Kiriath-Jerim in Judah. Therefore they called that place Dan to this day. Behold, it is west of Kiriath-Jerim. They passed from there to the hill country of Ephraim and came to the house of Micah. I read this passage at the very end of last week, and I wanted to reread it to set us back into a proper understanding of the circumstances, like we saw last time, the Danites are headed north. But as I remarked in my previous time reading this passage, they're taking a very circuitous route. From where they started and to where they're going, they could have just gone straight up the coastal plain into the Jezreel Valley and dropped themselves into Laish with hardly any effort at all. But rather than do that, they've gone this particularly odd route. They've gone first east up into the hill country, then turned north and head directly to Micah's house. And as I said, there's no coincidence here that they're making a second stop at his house. This is purposeful. They want something there. In the first stop, what did they find? Well, coming through the first time, they were stunned to discover that Micah had established his own personal house of worship. And remember, last time we said, this is wholly new. This is totally mind-blowing. No one had ever considered you could do this. And here they had a guy with his own personal priest. Apparently, they liked the idea of their own religious system. The law, as you may know, required Jews, Jewish men, and that meant typically their families, to travel regularly from wherever they were in the land to where the tabernacle was, to worship on certain feast days throughout the year. Well, once the Danites go as far as they're planning, once they hit Laish, they're going to be a long way from Shiloh, which is the place where the tabernacle is in this day. And who wants to walk a long way if they can avoid it? It's just simple laziness, right? Efficiency. And based on what they saw at Micah's house, they have looked into the future and they have said, there is a better alternative than going to where God said we have to go and doing it God's way it's sort of like the very first time someone had a personal computer in their house prior to that you had to go to universities or only big companies could have their computer to do their own bidding but you see it in someone's house and it was like that's the future soon everyone's going to want one of those that's what's happened everyone wants a priest everyone wants their own way of worship isn't that better more convenient That's how they must have felt when they saw that the first time. And so now they have set themselves with a goal to go back to Micah's house and take from him, steal from him, what he has set up. Look at verse 14. Then the five men who went to spy out the country of Eliege said to their kinsmen, Do you know that there are in these houses an ephod and household idols and a graven image and a molten image? Now consider, therefore, what you should do. They turned aside and came to the house of the young man, the Levite, to the house of Micah, and asked him of his welfare. The 600 men, armed with their weapons of war, who were of the sons of Dan, stood by the entrance of the gate. Now the five men who went to spy out the land went up and entered there and took the graven image and the ephod and household idols and the molten image, while the priest stood by the entrance of the gate with the 600 men armed with weapons of war. When they went into Micah's house and took the graven image, the ephod and the household idols and the molten image, the priest said to them, What are you doing? They said to him, Be silent. Put your hand over your mouth and come with us. And be to us a father and a priest. Is it better for you to be a priest to the house of one man or to be priest to a tribe and a family in Israel? The priest's heart was glad. (laughs) And he took the ephod and household idols and the graven image and went among the people. Human nature has never changed, has it? So imagine a Danite army of 600 men. They're armed. They're ready for battle. Remember, they're going up to fight the Canaanites in Leish. And there are five scouts. Those are the first guys that had come through on the original scouting trip to go look for a better place. And they had stopped with Micah the first time, right? So they're back now with the group. And they show these men how to refine Micah's house. And then when they get to Micah's house, they say, you'll never believe what this guy's got. He's got his own tabernacle. No, yeah, he's got an ephod. He's got a priest. He's got idols that he worships. Yeah, you should go check that out. They knew, these five scouts knew, that this discovery would inspire the same feelings within the flesh of these 600 men as it had in their own when they saw it the first time, right? In fact, they're depending on it, because what they want is a strong force, as you can tell, this army is stationed right outside the gate to make a point. They want to make sure they can have the force necessary to take what Micah's got, and to bring that priest with them up to Leish. So they first go to the home of the Levite, as you can see. They strike up a conversation, probably telling him, hey, we're the same guys that saw you earlier. Remember, you blessed our trip. We went up. You know, It was a good time. And then they move from that house to what must have been a nearby house where Micah was living. And they begin to start stealing all of his implements of worship. And of course, as soon as the Levite figures out that that's what's going on, well, he objects. And then they tell him, shut up and don't challenge what we're doing. And then they make him an offer. And they say, you know, you can be a priest in a bigger place. You can have more people, a promotion, in other words. And that's the offer that this career-minded apostate Levite couldn't turn down. I mean, he's obviously being forced to do it. They said, put your hand over your mouth, shut up, do what you're told. But they also incentivize him and say, there's something in it for you, if you just think about it for a minute. And so he agrees. He agrees, basically, to tack up, take off with these guys, relocate him and his family, I presume, going all the way to a place he's never been before, and start over with another tribe. And there is so much wrong with this scene. It's hard to know where to begin in breaking it all down, isn't it? I'll do my best. First... You have the Danites, you have these guys, these 600 men, they're bullying and threatening a man that they believe will bring them closer to God. Think about that. Men act so strange when it comes to imagining how they're going to find God, don't they? I mean, if you truly believe, for example, that this Levite could serve as an intermediary for you to God, then how do you really expect him to be a sympathetic representative when you have kidnapped him? and brought him up under these circumstances, right? He just witnessed them stealing, which under the law, by the way, is punishable by death. Now he's being forced to go along with the theft, and participate with it, with these men, and be uprooted, and yet, despite all that, the Danites are convinced in their own hearts that this guy is going to lead them to a blessing from God. That's the same kind of thinking that leads men to kill innocents, and do all manner of terrible things in the name of their God. Such men never stop to consider the hypocrisy of using sin to find holiness. Isn't that bizarre? That we rationalize that in our hearts somehow and come to conclude that that works? That from God's point of view, he's okay with that? In their warped and their perverted hearts, they find sin compatible with pursuing and pleasing a God. Anyone, by the way, can claim to be acting in the name of God. But that doesn't mean they are truly inspired by God to do what they are doing, right? For example, the Crusades of long ago, those were atrocities committed in the name of Jesus. The fact that the people had crosses on their flags and called themselves Christians, friends, does not in itself make them Christian, much less does it mean that their activities were inspired by God. It just means that you can pretend. The Inquisition done by the Spaniards, that was torture committed in Jesus' name. Even the prejudices of our own society over the past century have often been perpetrated in the name of Jesus by people who, again, claim to be Christian and maybe in some cases could have been. That's the same twisted logic that even leads men and women today to seek out a prosperity message or other lies instead of seeking the truth. They're no different than the Danites here in the sense that the Danites distorted a proper form of Jewish worship and called it okay. Sinful men have always done that. They have always packaged God in ways they preferred, beginning with Cain, by the way, who was faulted for bringing a false form of sacrifice before the Lord. That was the first one. And he messed it up. Because sinful men always want to believe that what they want is what God wants for them. And in reality, they're just pleasing their own flesh and the enemy by the way is only too willing to be complicit in that and to support that desire the enemy is able to counterfeit anything of god except holiness so you can always find the lie because if holiness is absent in the work of someone claiming to be working under god then you know it's not of god so that's the first thing that comes to mind as i see this scene play out what kind of warped thought says we can do all these evil things and it's a way to god but then secondly, there's the question of why these Danites even cared about observing any form of religious practice in the first place. I mean, if they're not willing to conform to the law given by God, then why give any attention to it at all? I mean, why are they going to the trouble of counterfeiting parts of it? Like trying to grab this Levite, for example. Why they have to take Micah's Levite? If they just want to do their own thing? Couldn't they have just traveled on their own, done their own thing, invented it all from scratch? They're going to an awful lot of trouble here, aren't they? It would appear they're determined to observe a religious practice similar to the one that Moses gave, but they still want to do it all on their own terms. And this is a second insight into the depravity of men's hearts, friends. Men always need, I say men, I mean men and women, obviously humans, they need something to worship. But the sinful heart never finds true worship on its own. You can't. We were created to worship the God who made us in his own image and breathed life into us. And so there's a natural yearning in men for fellowship with the creator. It's always been a part of our human nature. Our soul is wired to worship someone or something. But Paul says that the sin of the fall in the garden distorted our appreciation of God such that over time we now direct our worship to other things rather than to him because we can't find him in our own ability. Because we don't know the Creator, we substitute the creation, Paul says. In Romans 1.20, as you probably know, he says, For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible men and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. So friends, the truth of the fallen world is not that men have stopped worship. Fallen men don't worship less. What they do, according to Paul, is they exchange the true worship for something false. And false worship takes so many forms that I think sometimes we overlook where it actually exists. It's based not only in objects that we say are God, but in pursuits that give us the same things we think God gives us. Joy, satisfaction, pleasure in some form. All of that is a form of idolatry because it's seeking to replace what only comes from God in a true and eternal way. It's always based in futile speculations and a darkened heart, Paul says. So that's the Danis. And then finally, I want to consider the perspective of the Levite. This opportunistic, religious guy. This is really little more than employment for him, isn't it? Isn't that pretty obvious? He hasn't experienced any encounter with the true living God. I mean, he's far from God. He's just seeking the praises of men and a good paying job in the process. He's not a priest, but as the saying goes, he likes to play one on TV. So when a better offer comes along, he's only too willing to pack up his tent and move to the east. At the end of the day, it's all practical matter for him. He's a good example of the kind of men that we have seen in the past and still see today serving God. Men who see godliness as a means of gain, as Paul puts it. Men who view ministry as a career rather than as a vocation of self-sacrificial service. Men who serve for a price, but the moment a better offer comes along, well, they bolt to the door. They do that because they were only there for the money in the first place. Obviously, friends, everyone's going to move around from time to time within the body of Christ. No one stays anywhere forever, I would imagine. Nothing short of the kingdom is going to last forever. And God may call all of us at some point to serve in a different place. That's not unusual. But when he calls us, that movement should be motivated by the glory of God, by the needs of his people, out of a desire to obey, not out of ego, not out of a pocketbook concern. And if this Levite had sincere desire to serve the Lord, as he would have claimed to, I'm sure, he would never have taken Micah's offer in the first place, much less now the Danite offer to go to this new place. He would have, in fact, put both Micah and the Danites to death, because that was the requirement under the law for apostasy. Clearly, he's not guided by that. Instead, he's doing what is right in his own eyes. Meanwhile, you have Micah... Eventually learning of this theft, as you might expect, and when he does, he seeks to retrieve his property. Verse 21. Then they turned and departed and put the little ones and the livestock and the valuables in front of them. And when they had gone some distance from the house of Micah, the men who were in the houses near Micah's house assembled and overtook the sons of Dan. They cried to the sons of Dan who turned around and said to Micah, What is the matter with you that you have assembled together? He said, You have taken away my gods which I made and the priest, and have gone away. And what do I have besides? So how can you say to me, what is the matter with you? The sons of Dan said to him, Do not let your voice be heard among us, or else fierce men will fall upon you, and you will lose your life and the lives of your household. So the sons of Dan went on their way. And when Micah saw that they were too strong for him, he turned and went back to his house. So in verse 21, we're told the Danites have left, and... Curiously, it says they've got children and livestock leading the way now. Now, that's an interesting detail because there's been no indication so far in this story that the Danites brought their own families with them when they left originally to come on this trip. All we've heard about up till now is the 600 men armed with weapons and so on. Now, though, you hear that there's children and livestock. And if there are children, friends, you can be sure there were also women because men don't go anywhere with children unless bringing women with them to care for the children. I mean, that's just a given. And the other curious detail is they put them in the front. Now, in tradition of that day, in the culture of that day, they would not have been in the front. They would have been in the rear. You would have the men in the front and the women and children pulling the rear normally. So this is a reversal of the normal customs. What these two details together tell us is that the Danites have acquired more than just Micah's relics. We have heard mentioned already in the story of houses around Micah's house. You've heard that now several times in the passage. So it appears that Micah's house of worship has attracted other worshipers and in the process has formed a little cult following in which you've got Micah, his priest, and a community now who have come to worship together. It shows you now the danger of this move into idolatry. It attracts followers. And so it appears now that the Danites have not only stolen the relics out of the house, but they took the servants and their families and the livestock of those families basically wiped out the town apart from Micah's immediate family and some of the other men, as it appears. And he they pulled all these people along with them. It may be that in the process of practicing this cultic religion that had propped up, that they needed some of the servants to do what was done in the original temple. You know, men who would attend to the, the burning of sacrifices. Who knows how elaborate this had become at this point. And perhaps all of this is fodder for this religion. You know, the livestock are the ones that are sacrificed, and the servants are the ones who would... Perform all the ritual. So the Danites took it all. The booty, if you will, of this, of this man. And they have positioned their war booty in the front ranks as they leave the scene. Because obviously they anticipate Micah might come back for it. And they wanted to put themselves between that booty and the Micah's army, whatever he can assemble, in his attempt to come back and claim it. All this is just treachery done in the name of the Lord. So sad to see, right? Now, as expected, Micah catches up, brings some men with him. They make a scene over the stolen goods. They complain that his gods have been taken away. Friends, if your gods can be kidnapped, then you need new gods. I mean, I think that's a fundamental principle of worship, isn't it? In fact, they're so impotent, they can't even protect themselves. And again, how curious that people worship something that they make with their own hands and which they must protect with their own power. Why bother with such a God? I mean, isn't your God supposed to have all the power? Isn't your God supposed to protect you? So when it's reversed, isn't that saying who the real God is? That's exactly the point, right? We want to be our own gods. Collectively, you have the relics of Micah's household here referred to as gods. Did you notice that? Micah refers to everything that was taken as gods. In other words, he believes not only that the molten image and the graven image are gods, he looks at the whole kit and caboodle as gods. That's the same thing you see today in other man-made religious systems. The relics of those systems, they aren't merely symbols of deity. They take on deity themselves in the minds of those who worship there. Catholics, for example, and I speak of this from personal experience, having grown up in a Catholic family, Catholics are taught that the wafer that they eat in their form of the communion meal on Sunday is actually the literal body of Jesus made so by the priest and all of the hocus-pocus that takes place right before they eat it. They call it transubstantiation. It's a false doctrine of the Catholic Church. There's other examples. I mean, there are many religions that bow and pray before statues in one form or another. If you talk to those people who engage in this stuff, it becomes clear in a very short time that it is impossible for them to separate the relic from the deity. They become one and the same in their mind, which is where ideas like transubstantiation come from. I mean, that didn't appear in the Catholic dogma overnight. What started as bread became God in their thinking because that's the inevitable effect of idolatry. You can't distinguish between what is real and what is not anymore. Even we as Christians need to be careful. Not to confuse the physical for the spiritual in our own worship of Christ. Because it is possible that you can overemphasize things like the building in which you gather or the people who serve you in ministry or even the Bible itself. Did you know that? This building is not God's house. We should never say that because that's not a biblical statement. The ministers who who serve us are not more godly or holy than we are. They're not closer to God because they have a title or because they serve us. Similarly, this printed book is not a holy and sacred object. It is a printed book. The words, the thoughts that are conveyed in it, yes, the mind of God, and therefore infinitely holy. But the object itself is physical and as such will burn up just like the rest of this planet will. It is the concepts, the meaning, the thought that has been recorded on these pages that will go on forever, that will never cease, according to Scripture. Knowing the difference between the physical and the spiritual is all important because the enemy is at all times trying to confuse us on that point, And he succeeds with too many people. In his protest, Micah says in verse 24, You've taken everything from me. I have nothing besides this. That is to say, with his house of worship gone, with his priests defecting, with his servants and his livestock gone, his reason for living is gone with them. His dignity, his power, his importance, they were all attached to these counterfeit objects, to his little homegrown worship business. Worship, friends, is supposed to be about the deity we seek to please. But for Micah, it was all about pleasing himself and it was about worshipping his own ego. Now that all that's been taken from him, well, he has nothing left. The truth is, he's right. The irony is, he never had anything to begin with. If your deity and all that your life is can be stolen by a small group of men that ride into town and ride away with it, well, what was it in the first place then? Of what real value did it hold for you? Idolatry is always an empty thing in the end. One day an idol fails. Whether that day comes in our earthly life or in eternity, friends, it will come and usually it will fail us many times over. You think wealth is your savior? You think power or fame or wisdom or your good looks is your savior? Let me assure you, friends, those things will all fail eventually. When your life brings hard questions and there are no easy answers, your idols will remain mute and impotent when you need something the most. But God's word has answers. God's spirit has the power to lead you into peace and understanding. Something that counterfeit worship simply cannot do. Micah contemplates the loss of everything that he has, and so he panics because he has nothing else. While you and I worship a God that can't be confined to one place, doesn't live simply to give meaning to our earthly lives, but rather is omnipotent, omnipresent, and offers us eternal life. When the Danites hear the protest, they threaten him. They tell him, shut up, or else you're going to get what's coming. They sound a little bit like organized criminals, don't they? making threats, forcing others to submit to their treachery. And as a result, Micah's is left without his false temple. But as I warned last time we were in this book, when we sin, the thing we may forget is that the sin that we produce can get a life of its own and travel on without us. Such that even if in a future day we decide we're done with our sin and we repent, that does not necessarily mean that it won't keep going and affecting other people down the road. And that's what you see here now. The Danites are now going to carry Micah's idolatry with them into their new home. Let's finish the chapter on this. Verse 27. Then they took what Micah had made and the priest who had belonged to him and came to Leish to a people quiet and secure and struck them with the edge of the sword and they burned the city with fire. And there was no one to deliver them because it was far from Sidon and they had no dealings with anyone. And it was in the valley which is near Beth-Rohab and they rebuilt the city and lived in it. They called the name of the city Dan after the name of Dan, their father, who was born in Israel. However, the name of the city formerly was Leish. The sons of Dan set up for themselves the graven image and Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Manasseh. He and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. So they set up for themselves Micah's graven image, which he had made all the time that the house of God was at Shiloh. So the Danites, as you can expect, they reach Leish, they destroy the town, they do it in a really cruel and unnecessary way. That remote location of the town prevented the inhabitants from calling for help, we're told, and which is kind of ironic because they had probably picked this place originally because it was so remote, and in the end that also made it vulnerable. And if you go there now, this town still exists in a ruin. And if you were to visit this town in Israel today, you can still see the temple that they set up, the building they eventually built, where they conducted all the false worship that is starting here with Micah and with these Danites. They set up their own temple of worship in northern Israel. And as a result, they introduced idolatry into the land of Israel. After arriving, it says they started with that Levite who went up with them. And only now does the author Samuel reveal the name of this guy. His name was Jonathan. Jonathan is the Levite that we've been talking about all this time. So why does he wait so long to give us his name? Well, because to the Jewish reader, this is a powerful bolt out of nowhere. It's a surprise ending. Let me explain why. He says here that Jonathan is a descendant of Moses through his son Gershom. The name Manasseh there is almost universally understood to be a reference to Moses, and it was probably originally Moses and changed later in some futile effort to protect the reputation of Moses by a Jewish scribe. But it's Gershon, the son of Moses, that's being described here. What Samuel is saying is is he's trying to shock the reader in Israel with the truth of this man's identity. Just think, a direct descendant of the lawgiver himself is leading the people into idolatry. And in fact, it may be possible that this man is only two generations removed from Moses because if we're to take what Samuel is saying literally, it went Moses, Gershom, Jonathan. And if that's true, if, in other words, if Samuel didn't skip any generations, then it would tell us this story occurred much earlier during the time of Judges than we assumed earlier, that it's not near Samson's time, but maybe as early as Deborah Barak or someone before that. In any case, Just consider how far the people have fallen. They come in under a man like Joshua, the successor to Moses, with this bold expectation they're going to take the land and God's going to lead them and drive people out like hornets and so on and so on. And within a few generations, idolatry. And idolatry plagued Israel for six centuries as a result of what starts right here. Countless sin, countless depravity took place among God's people because of the disobedience of one Ephraimite, and 600 Danites and the families that followed. And as a result of their part in instigating Israel's idolatry, there's an interesting tie between this moment and the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation in chapter 7, we find out that in the times that we call tribulation, in the last years of this age, before Christ's second coming, the restarting of evangelism on the earth, the reinitiation of faith on the planet, begins with a very special group of men that God equips for that purpose. They're numbered at 144,000 men, and they divide equally among 12 tribes of Israel. 144,000 divided into 12,000 from each of 12 tribes. But when you look at the list of the 12 tribes that are in the book of Revelation in chapter 7, it's interesting that two names are missing. And those two names, those two tribes that are missing, are Ephraim and Dan. And people often speculate, why is it that those two tribes are not mentioned in that particular list? It's my contention that these two, in their role now in the book of Judges, are being shown to be the cause of idolatry. They were the ones who led Israel into false worship, and therefore they're not given the privilege to be part of the groups who then re-emerge within Israel to reintroduce true worship into the land. None will come from the tribes of Dan and Ephraim. Now the text doesn't say it here, but... Not all the Danites made this trip to Leish. Some remained behind in the land that God allotted them. But nonetheless, the entire tribe of Dan disappears before long in the history of Israel. Over time, they become the captives of the Philistines through intermarriage and conflict up in that region. Notice in verse 30, it says here there was the mention of the captivity of the land as a coming judgment and that they eventually succumbed to that. By the time you get to 1 Chronicles, in the history of Israel, the tribe has completely disappeared from the record of those who were living in Israel in the day. Dan is just gone. So friends, our first story at the end of the book of Judges reveals a breakdown in the religious structure of the nation of Israel. Israel is now following a false god, false priesthood in a false system rather than in the system God gave to them, moving away from the house of God, forgetting who God was. And then in addition to that, The people are beginning to fracture in their identity. They're moving around, as you see here with the tribe of Dan. Next time when we come back, we'll be studying the second of these three stories. We'll start that. It encompasses the last three chapters of the book of Judges. And in this story, you see a breakdown in the social fabric of the nation. Once again, this is a story that takes place earlier, looking back in time. But it sets up the second half of the problem. And as I've said several times and continue to say, because I'm afraid that the nature of this book is just going to drive us all into a clinical depression, the two stories summarize the breakdown of the overall society of Israel as a result of everyone doing what is right in their own eyes. But there's a third story in the book of Ruth, so that we are not left with no hope for this nation. We realize that despite the sin and the depravity of men, God is yet still at work in quiet ways through a Redeemer to bring this nation out of their sin. And that's why we'll finish with the book of Ruth after these two stories. But that's enough for today. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Father, just as you have worked through men like Boaz and women like Ruth to restore a people who were so far from you, you have worked through Christ in our hearts by the Spirit to bring a stubborn and rebellious heart back to you and each of us who know you by faith. Thank you, Father, for that. Thank you that we have the opportunity to see ourselves through the eyes of these people so that we know, Lord, that we have uh, still got a long way to go in many cases, but at the same time, Father, we know we have arrived because of your work on the cross. And We look forward, Father, to seeing us uh, put aside all sin in a day to come. But thank you, Father, that you bring uh, your grace to unholy, unloving men like us, men and women who were who never deserving of anything other than your judgment, but by your grace, Father, you have given us a better way. We thank you for that. We thank you, Father, that you have uh, been working that through so long, through so many people, that even now, Father, we read scriptures handed down by the Jewish people, by your people, and yet look at the people you had to work with, Father. If you can take this nation and shepherd it for centuries father such that they can become glory for the world and father what can't you do who can't you use two of us is so unworthy that we are beyond your reach we must conclude no one father for you have worked with far worse but father don't let us feel any excuse for our sin either though you will work with whom you have you call us all to be like you we ask, Lord, that you would be continuing in that work in our hearts. And as we see opportunity, Father, let us take the lessons we've learned from Scripture and use it to speak truth to others who may need to hear it too. Let us be your witnesses, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.